Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 8.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetumc.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. So there are several things that you can say to a pastor that make us either sick to our stomach or, or make our heart ache. One of those is, I don't really think that I need to go to worship. That's painful to hear for a pastor. And yet more and more you hear it, right? Maybe you've even said it. We can talk about that later. But you hear it all the time from people. You know, people find out what I do and they'll say, oh, you know, I used to go to church or I'm a Christian, but I don't really feel like I need to go to church. Oh, it hurts so bad when they say that. Because they're wrong. They're wrong. And they're not wrong because I say they're wrong. They're wrong because Jesus says that we should be here. Jesus not only said this to us, Jesus modeled this for us. All four gospel accounts tell us that Jesus was faithful to what it meant to be religious in his day. He spent countless Sabbaths in the synagogues. And scripture tells us how he was teaching and listening and speaking God's truth there. Young men were expected to go down to Jerusalem to make that long, arduous trek from Galilee to Jerusalem three times a year. He even stipulated when they were to go, what they were to go for, what they should sacrifice, and the prayers that they should pray. And Jesus did this because he was faithful to his religion. And we often struggle with that, right? There's often this balance that we try to gather between spirituality and religiosity, okay? Now, maybe you've heard of religiosity, maybe not. It's a very scholarly term. Maybe you've heard more of religiousness, right? How religious are you versus how spiritual you are? And often this is an unfair comparison, because the truth is that they are deeply connected and interwoven with one another. And they are so by God's design. This is not something that the church concocted and then simply transmitted as tradition. Instead, this is something that goes deep into our scripture. It doesn't take you very long to get to Exodus in the Bible, right? Second book. And when you get there, after God brings God's people out of the bondage of Egypt sets them up at the bottom of a mountain and starts to tell them what this relationship is going to look like from now on. Goes into intricate detail about what God will do for them and what the reciprocal expectations are. And then they have a little snafu and they're delayed entering into the promised land and God says, well, if it's going to be a while before you come into the kingdom, then perhaps we should set about making some order of this. And so God tells them not once, but twice, explicitly how to build the tabernacle, the first house of God. And when I tell you explicitly, I mean every intricate detail, down to the color scheme and the right animal pelts. God is very clear that this is a necessity for God's people, to have a place where they can come into the presence of the Lord. Now, there is nothing like worship, nothing in all the world like it. It is the one time that the Trinity is made manifest. And are we not people of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? 
Amen. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> we are. We were baptized under that. We proclaim the glory of God by that. This is our identity, that God is so desirous of connecting with us that God didn't just give us one conduit, that God decided to reveal God's self in three very distinct and personable ways so that if we couldn't connect to one, there has to be another and that that would become a conduit for connecting to the others. And so God gave us the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if we pay very close attention to our worship, we will see that all three are here. And I'm not just talking about the words of the songs we sing or the scripture that I preach from, but instead, I want you to focus on presence for a moment. Now, Exodus even tells us that after the tabernacle was completed and erected for the first time, it was a portable house of worship because, as you may not know, they were going to wander for a while. And so God said, we're going to need to make this something we can move around. But after they erected it for the first time, there was a blessing. There was a consecration. And that ground that had been a dusty field right before that tent went up became sacred ground, sacred space, because of a blessing that was done by the high priest. And this space right here where we are was sacralized. After it was completed and the last touch of paint and the last little polish on the pews was done, they had a blessing and they invoked the presence of the Father to dwell here forever. Have you ever come in this room and been the only one here? Have you ever felt what's in this room? It's almost eerie to come in here, to go into any sanctuary where it's been sacralized and know that you are not alone even though there's no other human being in here. Countless people go into these spaces and encounter the present and living God because this is where we have invited the Father to dwell. The Father is in here whether we are or not. So don't come in here and have bad conversation. Come in here and respect that this is holy ground. And even though we don't make you remove your sandals and your shoes, I assure you that the Father is here and has been waiting for you to return. And Jesus tells us in the gospel account of Matthew that wherever two or more are gathered, that there he is also. This is a more accepted sign of our worship, right? That whenever we gather together, the body of Christ is represented. But it's more than that. We don't just become the body of Christ. Christ is present here with us now. And that will be readily apparent when we partake in communion in a little while. Christ agrees to come back to us, not to just leave us until the day of resurrection, but instead, when we gather with intentionality, we bring together the Father and the Son in a manifest way here on earth and get to bask in that presence. And for those of us who have been baptized, we received a portion of God. We received the Holy Spirit at our baptism, that as that pastor was pouring out, or for some of you, dipping you under, that God was pouring out the Holy Spirit. And long after that water dried, the Holy Spirit was soaking in through the skin and the muscle and through the bone into the very fabric of our being. And that ever since that day, God has been in here. That's why our body is a temple, because a portion of God is with us. And so we are commanded to come together and to reunite that portion of the Holy Spirit with the portion that is in the others. So that when you come into worship and we are in the zone, 
you can feel the Holy Spirit, not only within you, but among you. And so it is that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are here with us when we worship in a way that never happens anywhere else. I've never quite gotten there at an admin board meeting. And the truth is, I'm not supposed to. That's not where we are to feel the Trinity. We are to feel it here in this context as God has commanded. Now, the thing about worship is that it varies. What we're doing now is not what we did at 8.30. And what we're doing is not what's going on down the street. So why is that? Why is it all so different? Our scripture points us toward that. Our scripture tells us that we are expected to participate and respond in worship. That Jesus tells us to be ready, right? To dress appropriately for action. So you'll notice today that I am not wearing my white robe. And it wasn't intentional. I was actually going to wear my white robe when I realized I lost a crucial button. And so I looked into the sacristy closet and I went, well, thank you, John Calvin. I'm about to get real traditional. This robe is called a Geneva gown and it traces itself back to John Calvin in the 1700s. Clergy have been wearing this since that point. It was actually designed to set us apart from our Catholic brethren. And so when we wear this robe, we are conveying that this is high and holy time, and I am in my priestly role when I wear it. I don't wear it out and about. I don't wear it for anything but worship, because this is a sacred garb, and I have clothed myself in an image of righteousness in order to lead God's people in our worship this day. I wear my stole, a sign of my authority, and my job to bring you into a deeper relationship in this time together. But not every clergy wears this. Not all clergy decide to robe. I wasn't wearing one at 8.30. So why am I wearing it now? I'm wearing it now because I have discovered over time something that isn't quite so clearly articulated often, that worship is in fact a language. And that as you are brought into the church, whether that's from birth and baptism or whether it's more recent or even today, that you are being acculturated, that you are being taught the language of a particular community. And as you come into that, you are being taught basic words, you are being taught some basic prayers and songs, all of which are particular to that community. And so our worship becomes a dialogue, and we have to be fluent enough in this dialect in order to hear God speak to us and to speak our praise to God. That's why worship is so personal. I'm sure you've never heard anybody argue over how worship should look, sound, or feel. It's actually in the Bible. They argued over it then too. And the truth is that it is so personal because this is your language. This is the way in which you communicate. If you can't communicate, you're lost. If we did this entire worship service exactly as you're used to it, but I did it in Korean, I'd have a whole bunch of you at my door. Because you need to be able to participate and hear God's truth and respond in your vernacular. It's vital to us that we can speak and hear. And now I was raised in this language. This is the language which I understood. My parents, who are sitting here and about to get very awkward for them, um, raised me in the United Methodist Church. Now my father here is a dyed-in-the-wool Methodist, born and raised, and I'm not even sure he ever missed a Sunday school class. 
And my mother here was born and raised and then later baptized a Southern Baptist. So growing up, which church do you think we spent time in? It was the Methodist, but way of the Southern Baptist Church because my mother got me ready in the morning, right? So who do you think decided how we dressed? My mother did. And so we always wore our Sunday best. We always wore dresses and nice shoes because that was the culture that my mother raised us in. And I'm not even talking slips here. I'm talking crinlins at the age of four. Very fancy. And you had those black shoes with the strap over the foot that you always tried to put over the back because you wanted to look older than you were. And you were just holding tight for the day that you get the one-inch heel. I have never recovered from that weight. <laughs> and so it is that that becomes part of how we understand our worship. How do you come to worship? Why do you wear what you wear? Why do you pick the shoes that you wear? All of this becomes part of how you understand your role and who you are and what God is seeing. There's no right or wrong answer. After I took communion at 8.30, I knelt at the altar rail. That was a lot easier without a robe. I'm still going to kneel at the altar rail, but it's going to be a little more difficult for me. I'll have to struggle through this a lot more. And so we have to make decisions about why we come looking the way we do. What is our intention? If we're going to be moving around tremendously and dancing, then we're probably going to want to wear some sensible shoes. Right? And if you're going to be climbing up and down these stairs, then you might want to consider pants. It's a practical thing. These are all things that play into our worship. And Jesus is calling us to be intentional, to think and to be ready, because you never know when Christ is coming. It's an important thing. It's a vital thing that we focus upon our worship. There's a lot of things in this world competing for your attention. And the truth is that the world would love to strip you of whatever it was that brought you in here. It would love to distract you and refocus you elsewhere so that you will pour your time and your energy, your presence and your gifts into that instead of this. This is where God has called us to be. And worship is crucial to what God is calling us to do. It is a tremendous part of being a disciple. There are times in my life where my spirituality was practically bankrupt. I would be lucky to scrounge a drop from the bucket. And yet, because of my religiosity, because I continued to go to church, because I continued to read that scripture, even though it looked like just a page of text, because I still gathered in small groups with other Christians, somehow, by the work of God, I was able to transcend that dark period when my spirituality was practically zero. Our religion sustains us, but we can't have religion without spirituality. It is both. Oftentimes in psychology, they talk about spirituality being the search for the sacred. Some of us are on that search right now. Where is the sacred in this? Where is the sacred in us? And by God, where are you out there? We are looking for God's presence, and we want to know that God is making a difference, even if it's just in here. We want to know that this is not pointless, that we're not just checking off an attendance pad. We want to know that in the end, what happens here matters. It matters. God was telling us that this isn't the end of our week. The Lord's day is the beginning of our week. And we come here to worship, to hear, and to be in the midst of God's presence, to be rejuvenated and revived, to be restored. 
Because we have a lot of work this week, don't we? Some of you are getting ready to go to work on Monday morning, and when you open up that email, it is just going to be a litany of low. Some of us are going to go to class, and we are just going to be overwhelmed and uninterested. And if God hasn't had the opportunity to refresh us, then where are we going to be by Friday? That's why we come to worship, because God has so much goodness. God wants to pour out on us. And God has said, come here and bless one another, and let me bless you. Come here so that we can have something together. We have work to do, brothers and sisters, and if we don't do this, we are never going to get past the start line, never going to get there. What we do in worship is not just a tradition. It is integral into the fabric of our being. This is who we were created to be. We were made to do this too. Now, I have for you a little walk on how deep this goes in us. All right, so this is my hymnal. It's a little fancier than what you got in the pews. It's supposed to be, apparently. I'm supposed to have very fancy leather and gilded edges. Makes me appear holy? I'm not sure. So I have my hymnal here, and we've been through this in the past couple weeks. It's not just affirmations of faith and prayers and songs, but you'll notice in here that there are tunes, right? So that if somebody got bold and we didn't have an accompaniment, somebody could sing for us our songs. But why do we sing? We sing so that this is the soundtrack to our lives. These are the tunes that have come through the movement of the Holy Spirit in people so that this is what we hear in our heads. This is what resounds in our hearts, and this is what we live in our lives. This is the musical of Christianity. And so we have this hymnal that's been with us since 86? I think 1986. But then I have these. This is my grandmother's hymnal. Cokesbury, 1920s. It's a lot thinner. They said, you know, this is good, but we need more. And so they created the best revival songs. And that apparently wasn't enough either. They needed spiritual life songs. They needed songs that they could sing when they were washing dishes and songs they could sing when they were going to work. They needed songs that they could sing in the silence of their lives so that what was coming out reflected what God was raining down. That's why God did this. Well, yesterday my family made a little trip up to Mickey Tavern. Had never been there before. And as we walked around the shops, we discovered this little gem. This is a Methodist hymnal from 1849. It's over 150 years old. And what strikes me about this is that this was an incredible purchase in that day and age. Somebody went without in order to have these songs. There's no notes in here. It's all just lyrics. But that somebody thought that this was worth forgoing a new outfit getting their new pair of shoes for the year, that instead they made a sacrifice to have this. And I wonder where it's been. I wonder what bedsides it brought comforting tunes. I wonder how it helped the mourn focus their energy on God's presence in the midst of strife. 
I wonder in what ways God has used the sacred words in this tiny, itty-bitty little book to remind God's people that we are the Lord's and that, yes, we do still have great work to do. What we do in worship matters. It matters to God, or God would just say, Christmas and Easter. But no, instead, from the very beginning, before there was a Christmas or Easter, God said, every week, every week I want to see you. Every week you need to see me. If we forsake this, then not only do we suffer in our spirituality, but the world suffers. The world does not have the Christianity vibrant and alive that it needs. You know, I had a friend who was in the Navy, and after Katrina, the U.S. government sent him, he was deployed down there, to help with the efforts to clean up and bring necessary supplies to people. And you know what he told me? They were late. The Red Cross was late. That the U.S. government and the Red Cross were beat by the United Methodist Committee on Relief. That Methodists were more ready and instantly responded to the needs of thousands and thousands of people. That what happened in worship transformed lives and they transformed others. What we do matters. And if we come into this place just every so often, that's maintenance worship, brothers and sisters. That's not going to make us thrive. We're not going to grow. We're not going to grow in God's love. We are not going to be perfected in God's grace. Instead, we are just going to hold steady until we decline. And God didn't make us for that. God didn't make us to just do all right. God promised us bountiful glory. God promises us good things, that we will become the means by which this world will come to know our God. And God's put in the work. God came to us, spoke to us, preached to us, taught us what we needed to know, and then got up on that cross and died for us. And wouldn't stop there. Rose from the dead for us. And we turn around and say, Lord, give us eternity. Give us eternal life. But we can't even give God an hour on Sunday? How can we make such demands? What kind of selfish, self-interested children would we be? God has claimed us and named us. God has given us everything we need to become more than what we are now. Because what we are might be all right. I mean, I'm ordained. Maybe I could just go home and kind of do it on my own for a little while. But after a while, it's like, why do I have to say this again? Lord, you obviously know it, and clearly I know it. Let's just skip past this part. Let's just move on. I'll just throw out a litany of what I want from you, and I'll just entrust that you'll do it. That is the exact same charge people levy at religiousness. 
that it just becomes rote and perfunct and it doesn't have any meaning or any passion. Do you know who gives passion to our worship? It's not me. It's you. It's you. When people come into this place, they don't want to just see me smiling and having a good time. They want to know that you are enjoying the presence of the Lord. They want to know that this is a place where God shines on every face. They want to encounter God not only here or here, but sitting right next to them. So the next time that somebody says to you, I don't really go to church. I don't really think I have to worship in the church. Take a moment and mourn that. Take a moment and realize that somebody, long before you ever sat here, decided that this was not only worthy but what was right and has laid a firm foundation for us to gather here and to go on in glory and grace. So yes, I want to see you here. I need you here. But more than that, God wants to see you here. You need to be here. And there are hungry, hurting, suffering people right outside of these doors. And they need us here. Amen? Amen. So we gather in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to bring honor and glory and praise because this is what God has said is right. And somewhere deep inside all of us in the caverns of our heart that we don't want to look into, we can see that, yes, God, it is right. And we come, and we worship, and we live. May this be the way this day and every Sunday thereafter. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful. And we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 8.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetumc.org to learn about ways you connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.